0: Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses, and Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and Its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses All available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American citizenship and its decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hanson today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start hillsdale.edu slash VDH.
1: Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is The Culturalist and we are looking at a few things today on the climate change accords, the infrastructure spending bill mandates, and also the attempted assassination of Prime Minister of Iraq, and maybe a few other things. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution. And he is the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Before we continue today, though, let's have a word from our sponsor.
0: Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor.
1: Welcome back. Victor, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing very well. Sammy and do well. I'm in I'm at a Bradley Board meeting the nonprofit philanthropic board oh, okay. in in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I just arrived.
1: Oh, great. And so you have a good week ahead of you, I hope. How's your book doing?
2: It's doing very well. It's uh, let's see this they're in the middle of uh, this week, and when everybody listens to this, it's released, there'll be still a few more slots, but Megan Kelly, the former Fox and NBC anchor, interviewed me for the new Criterion that Roger Kimball hosted for about an hour and 10 minutes, and that should be on, aired on, I think it's C-SPAN 2 book talk. And Peter Robinson just came out with an uncommon knowledge hour in the Hoover platform uh, on the book, and yeah, then, and I,
1: I've listened to that. That's an excellent interview. I really? Well, thank you. And that. then
2: yeah. as well, Hillsdale College, I did a number of hours of taping. They have a very professional production team. I mean, with the sets and the actual video. I hope I lived up to the quality of that show. But they have an online, I did a World War II course. But I think in about 10 days, they're going to have a course on the dying citizen. And I did an hour for each chapter of the book. So it's going to be kind of a long course. And I think they are going to limit it to the first 20,000 people that sign up.
1: Okay. And I thought that was already filled up, or
2: is that not? Already I, th- I think it, it's close to being filled up. I haven't oh, checked okay. in the last two days. This is the fourth week that the book is out. Um, yeah. They just, yeah. So it's doing very well. It was on the New York right. Times bestseller list for three weeks. I imagine by now it's probably off a little bit.
1: Okay. Are you ready for some questions on the current news
2: cycle? Yes, I am. All right. Am.
1: Well, the first thing on DOC is the infrastructure spending bill. I think it was $1.7 trillion. The Democrats seem to be lamenting that it wasn't passed before the um, elections, uh, the Virginia elections, and they feel like it affected McAuliffe's Well, the fact that he was defeated and I had I was looking at some articles um, in the Atlantic. And I know that they're arch rivals and owned by Steve Jobs, widow. And
2: and so tend to be yeah.
1: yeah, Lisa Jobs. But found this interesting article on the current infrastructure bill, and they wrote in it that moderate Democrats worry the price tag for the safety net bill is too high meaning the the cost of it. Progressives think it's too low. The two camps have been slow to coalesce, but Biden associates hope their collective fear of a drubbing next year in the elections might just force a detente. And it goes on to talk about uh, that the Republicans are currently engaged in voter suppression and gerrymandering districts. And I have to say, I kind of smiled at that from here in California as we watch our own districts getting gerrymandered by Democrats. But nonetheless, I was wondering what your thoughts were on this bill and those reflections by The Atlantic.
2: Well, when you, depending on on whom you talk to, whether Democrat or Republican liberal conservative, The word infrastructure is the key how you define it. And I think Republicans think about 80% of the bill is inclusion, diversity, green, you know, wokeism, entitlement, social spending. And remember we had that talk about a month ago where we were using the word infrastructure. We Americans now for everything, you know, prenatal care is infrastructure, abortion advice is infrastructure. Solar panels or infrastructure, everything is infrastructure. So the actual amount that the people in America thought they were getting this trillion dollar plus for what, widening 101 in California, maybe helping the 99 in the blood alley the Central Valley here, building another reservoir at Temperance Flat just to, to label regional concerns where I live. I don't think you're gonna get any of that. But then it begs a question and, and oh, by the way, Sammy, you said, well, the Democrats thought that if they had to passed this, they would have had momentum and they might have avoided the catastrophe in Virginia. And that's a very strange way of thinking that they have. In other words, people were angry at the entire Biden agenda. And then they're saying, if we just had given more of the agenda before, they would have liked us. Now, they didn't like anything we did. They didn't like you know, spending money and printing money and running up $2 trillion debt and having zero interest rates while you're printing all this money and we're up to 5 to 8% annual inflation. But if we've just been more inflationary, that's absurd. So <laughs> the real issue is why in the heck did 13 Republicans, I understand Adam Kissinger and all those people, that, you know, the people who, some of the people who impeached Trump and will not be running again. But there were a lot that weren't. And I don't understand why you would sign on as a Republican conservative, if that would be true, you were a conservative. Why would you support this bill, given that it's not going to be a very effective way to build infrastructure, given all the lard in it? Yeah, didn't
1: 12 Republicans sign on to 13.
2: It? I think 13, 13 did. Okay. And then you're going to empower Joe Biden. And I mean, when you vote for this and he gets momentum, this isn't just a, you know, Democrat versus Republican. This guy is, a, is whether he is knows he is, he's a socialist. And so what these 13 Republicans did, they gave him a boost. And that boost will ripple throughout the border, $450,000 for illegal alien families who broke the law and are going to be rewarded, apparently. And it's going to empower the cutback on federal leasing of new oil lands, liberal judges, that whole agenda has been empowered. It's a very radical agenda. This is not Bill Clinton and bipartisanship of the 90s. So why would they do that? I don't understand. It was a, it was nihilistic. And why didn't the Republicans have some inkling of it? Because when you talk to Republican congressmen, they were very nonchalant. Nobody in their right mind is going to vote for this. Well, yeah, 13 of your guys did. You need more control. And you know they should have lobbied them. And that sets up a lot of momentum for this reconciliation bill, which um. is going to be really inflationary. Yep. And so it, it's the same thing with the impeachment of Trump. I mean, if Liz Cheney thinks that there's existential problems with the way Trump conducts himself, well, then make your point and criticize him. But she did vote for about 85 percent of his initiative. But then also balance your criticism of Trump with this socialist left that is actually opposed to everything that you've ever embraced, and by that I mean, you say to yourself, I'm against abortion, I want deregulation, I want energy development, especially in Wyoming, to take her case, I want conservative job. I'm getting all that as I've never gotten it before with Donald Trump, but I've got to work on him because he is uncouth, crude. But on the other side, I surely don't want to empower them because they represent everything that my entire family is opposed socialism what, what what these people do then they get obsessed with the tick on your nose and then they you know they take a chainsaw and cut your head off and <laughs> that's, what that's what they've done and they've empowered this agenda and this is another example of it so yeah. i was very disappointed i think everybody was shocked yeah. and they're just thinking you know what this is why you can't trust the mainstream republican party yeah and it's I mean- you know this I think conservatives, populist, nationalists, everybody's upset at this. Yeah. That, that's something about this orthodox Republican Party. They all want to get along with these people who are destroying, not all of them, but a lot of them want to get along. They don't want to stand up and speak out and say, you well, know I... what, you vote for this thing. And it it's not infrastructure. It's not infrastructure. You are giving them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. For things that have nothing to do other than to grow government and feed their constituencies and bloat the government even larger. And you know what happens, and you can just look at look at Northern Virginia. This is this is a bill that that feeds that whole Northern Virginia paradigm of federal workers, bureaucrats, et cetera, et cetera. Why would you want to empower that when you don't get any bang for the buck as far as actual infrastructure dollars, and yet they do, and then they're going to, you know, as I said, it's like pushing joe biden was trying to go up the top of the summit and he was sliding back and as he slid back millions of lives will be better off that he's sliding and these guys came in and they pushed him over the top
1: I think everybody's a little unsettled, too, because it's clearly going to lead to inflation in a time when the economy is slowing because there's no workers. So there's going to be this whole stagflationary, or at least there's this uncomfortable feeling that we might be headed for a stagflationary period. Well, right? put it
2: this way, if you are getting if you've got ten thousand dollars and you put it in the bank and you're getting half of one percent interest and you're losing seven percent of your money just sitting there, what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to do what everybody does. You're going to go put it in the stock market. But that stock market's not reflecting actual business performance, corporate profits. It's not. It's just reflecting the fact that everybody didn't do anything for a year and they got a bunch of funny money and they can't get any money in their savings accounts. And they're losing it now at 7%. So they're looking for real estate, You know, flip a house, yeah. go into a mutual fund, do anything. And that's not. Reality.
1: That's not a healthy economy. All right. So let's move on then to the 26 states who are pushing back against the mandate and filing petitions with the um, federal system. And also recently, a an interview by the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, where he was defending it, saying that, and I think this is the democratic argument that. It protects coworkers and customer or and or clients of businesses, and that's why they're asking for these businesses with more than hundred workers to have this mandate or to have regular testing. And so that's more or less what it is. And what are your thoughts on it? I know that there's new antiviral pills coming out too, and I meant to mention that as well.
2: Well, start with the premise that Joe Biden said he wasn't going to have mandates. He was asked that. You're going to have mandate? No. And the reason he said that at the time, I think, was to get the larger landscape. Joe Biden came in and inherit, inherited Operation Warp Speed, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson, which were shortly going to come out. And then 17 million people were vaccinated, a million a day, and he, there was no Delta virus. And so if you look at the precipitous drop in February and March, he, he, he took credit for it. Yeah. And So all of March, he said, oh, hey, look at me, Every, Donald Trump is responsible for all 390,000 people that died. Well, now 370,000 have died in a much shorter time under his tenure. And so you can't believe anything he says. So he, now he's the mandate because it's out of, it was out of control. It wasn't just out of control. It was out of control after everybody said it was over with. And this new mutant, and then it was out of control if they said this. We've got to remember, Sammy, what they told us about the vaccination. If you get the two Pfizer's, if you get the two Moderna's, if you you're 96 percent protected. You don't have to ferret out every little person and say, oh, you're not vaccinated. You have armor on. You don't care. You're not going to be a Karen. You've, that's how it was sold to everybody. Get vaccinated and let everybody worry about their problem. But you don't have a problem now. And then the Delta variant came along. And this arrogance, quote, unquote, science that never expresses any doubt or uncertainty with these pseudo ideas, they were embarrassed. So then they said, well, it does protect you from serious illness and hospitalization. And that is true. It is. And so it's a wise thing to get probably but they don't know exactly the cost-benefit analyses for certain groups. Obviously, if you're my age, 68, it makes sense to err on the side of vaccination, given the tables uh, of age-related morbidities. But if you're, I don't know, 15 to 30, and you're a young male, and you see some of the side effects, small though they are as a percentage, but COVID is a smaller percentage. So everybody should have that freedom to make those choices. They're intelligent people. And then the second thing is we heard and heard and heard from the whole establishment that natural immunity faded. It wasn't as effective. And yet, when you look at the Israeli study of the Pfizer vaccination, which I think most scientists think is the most comprehensive and detailed and has the less innate fallacies or flaws in the methodology they kind of show that natural immunity at least originally gives you many more antibodies we don't really know the role of t-cells and b-cells but more antibodies and probably for as long or almost as long a time as the pfizer and the moderna do i don't know about the johnson johnson so my point is the Johnson Johnson are weaker. But my point is, let's just review very quickly. So there's probably, I don't know what there is. theres is. We're getting on the projections of two and a half to three per known case. We're getting up to about 100 million people have had COVID. There's going to be overlap with vaccinations. So what I'm getting at is we've got about 75% of the country that's either vaxxed or had natural immunity, A, We know a lot more about the variant, the Delta variant now. We know how to treat it. It seems to be more infectious. But when you look at the actual fatality rates, they tend to be probably less than initial COVID uh, variant. And what's happening is it's slowly starting to fade. Now, it may spike again in winter. But my point, at least in the United States, is we're getting near that taboo word herd immunity. And there's all these protocols with monoclonal antibodies and uh, certain types of antiviral drugs, certain therapeutics. And now we have the Merck and the Pfizer pills coming out. Mm -hmm. I think the Merck, or maybe it's the Pfizer, I can't remember which one, is promised to be 80% efficacy. Take a pill. All of these then suggest that why would you fire a soldier or a 10-year military veteran because he doesn't want to be vaxxed when, A, he may have had COVID, wouldn't you at least give him a chance to have an antibody test to see if he still has antibodies? Yeah, I and don't B, know why they don't include that, right? They should. Or why do not just put a stay on it because the virus is starting to dip? And let's see if these therapeutics have less side effects than the vaccinations and greater or as good efficacy. So you're out in the field and you got a headache, you take a field kit. If you got COVID, just like if you got the flu, you take one of these pills yeah. and you're not infectious probably within 48 hours. So I, I just don't see it. It's now kind of a, a control thing, I think, with Biden. He's got that age-related fixation. Wear a mask, get a vax, get a vax, wear a mask. And then just when you think, okay, I'm willing to concede that, then you see him without a mask or sneeze and has sinus material on his hands, and then shakes with it so the whole thing is just a joke and you know I as I said earlier I did the right thing I got the Moderna I had a really bad reaction probably because I had always had bad reactions with an immune problem I had I don't I, I did what they said and then I think I got COVID only because Two weeks ago, I was asked to get an antibody test for a medical procedure, and I had almost 20, over 20, 2,300 antibody level. And they thought that would be highly irregular after nine months of the Moderna. But if that 101 fever I had for two days, you know, two months ago was COVID, and I think it was because people, I was around, people had it. It was, it was about like the reaction to the second Moderna shot, and it was over. And so... I don't know. It just seems that the more the virus wanes, the more people are vaccinated, the more we have 100 million people probably with antibodies, the more strident they're doubling down on these mandates.
1: Yeah. And As
2: I said earlier, this is the left that told us that the Republican right, the white supremacists, they were massaging COVID and the lockdown on racial terms to hurt marginalized people. That's what they told us. And remember in May of, excuse me, June of 2020, we had all of these protests where a thousand medical care providers said, oh, by the way, social distancing, masking, all that doesn't apply to people who want to go out and protest for BLM yeah. in George Floyd. They get an exemption because their mental health is more important than COVID. In other words, we don't really care if they're super spreaders and they all congregate and spread it because we don't have any science. We're just political hacks and yeah. we make it up as we go. Cause I, I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at Sammy is that right now, when you go to a restaurant in the Bay area, or you go to a restaurant in New York and they have an ID requirement, i.e. a vaccination ID requirement, it reflects the numbers of people who have been vaccinated. And the left said, That people of color, for historical reasons, were not being vaccinated. This wasn't fair. Well, if you think that's not fair, then don't have that requirement, because what you're doing is you're turning it into Lester Maddox and Bull Connor's lunch counter circa 1960 in Mississippi. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: their whole agenda is turning everything to that, it seems like, on the left, at least in education.
2: You're just crazy. Yeah. I was, As I said earlier, I was in New York, and I saw an African-American family, and they went in, and they said it was a breakfast place. And he said, I've had COVID. I believed him. But, I mean, if he had an ID card that could just show the, an antibody level, why wouldn't you let him in? Mm-hmm. And they turned away the whole family. And then I looked around, and I thought, wow, everybody here is either Asian or white. And I thought, who's behind this rule? Oh, it's Bill de Blasio, the person who calls everybody a racist. So. I don't have a problem either way, but when you start injecting race and you do it selectively, then it's bankrupt.
1: Yeah. And it really shows that the left is not very self-reflective, is it? No. So let's turn then to the climate change conference, the UN climate change conference. I was just reading an article from the online magazine Spiked, and it was on climate derangement syndrome. So, you know, it's going to be good. And he got down to saying, talking about how all of the conference attendees came out with all these crazy statements about climate change after it. And he said, Prime ministers, bishops, princes, and noisy greens all tried to outdo each other with their apocalyptic warnings. It has been a grim competition of catastrophes and orgy of hyperbolic prophecies that wouldn't look out of place in the book of Revelations. And then he went on to show all the quotes from everything they were saying. And I thought two things were interesting on all those quotes. One is he didn't have a quote from Joe Biden. So I don't know what happened to Joe Biden's, you know, quote or persona. And then finally, Greta Thunberg got out there blaming the entire industrial revolution and therefore Britain because it was the first one was the most culpable on the primary of her villains <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting lead into what are your thoughts on that climate change conference oh, wow. or climate change in general
2: committee of parties 26th is a total joke you got four what 400 private jets fly in to Glasgow of all places a thousand. Uh, gas guzzling limos? Why didn't everybody just go there in Teslas? Or why didn't they fly commercial? Or why didn't they take some kind of alcohol-fueled train? The point is, they're always lecturing everybody, and they never live by the ramifications of their own ideology. So sick of Prince Charles and just Greta Thunberg. She reminds me, you know, the Children's Crusade. She's no Joan of Arc, that's for sure. She's like... uh, that guy that, you know, after that tragic shooting in the high school, yeah. he's become a big spokesman. So they get these underage kids, underage, meaning they're, they're not adults, kids that are underage. And then they, they were supposed to listen to them as if they're, because they have no reason and education, they have some kind of divine voice that goes right to you. That's kind of like mm-hmm. the Joan of Arc syndrome, that they haven't been corrupted yet, or they're innocent and they're truth-telling. And she's yeah. a total moron. And then she has this problem where she looks like the exorcist actress. You know, she gets angry and her eyes start to look.
1: Linda Blair.
2: uh, Yeah, it's (laughs) sad. And then people listen to this stuff. British Empire. Most of the reason that she's in Glasgow right now, and she's not in some godforsaken place in, you know, I don't know where, outer Mongolia or central Uganda or in the high you know, Andes Mountains yeah. trapped is the industrial revolution that Britain created, that created every good thing that we have today.
1: I mean, yeah, sure. The
2: modern industrial world has made man's longevity go up from about 40, 38 to 76, 78. She's yeah. going to live a long time because of that. But only, any, why anybody would showcase that? Then there's this principle that as no one, but, John Without Kerry could,
1: self-reflection, right?
2: That's no. The, and this, when they when John Kerry, remember, was asked last year about it. He just said that he had to fly the Heinz Ketchup jet, his wife's jet that he married into, because he had to get there faster and quicker and more efficient with less wear and tear on him because he was doing it all for us. It's what <laughs> Al Gore said when he sold his cable TV to an anti-Semitic Al Jazeera that was funded by Gutter's Uh, petrodollars. This is a green Al Gore. And then he tried to rush the sales so he could avoid the capital gains tax increase. And by the way, thinking of John Kerry again, that's exactly what John Kerry did when he moved his boat to Rhode Island, I think it was, or New Hampshire, so he could cut back on his property tax after advocating higher taxes. So these people do this stuff in part as a ritual of a performance art, a virtue signaling, because they do not ever really give up the comfort of their own lives. And so it's aimed at the middle class. It's aimed at the middle class. They're saying, you know what? You have three bedrooms and two baths, and it's pretty ugly. And that house, and it's so crappy. And you've got that stupid SUV, and you've got a Winnebago parked around the back, and you've got all this crap a snowmobile on you water ski we're just going to cut all out of that you don't have any of the taste of the stuff go read vanity fair or vogue if you want to see how you're supposed to spend your excess money and then we get down to the heart of the issue and that is is the climate changing perhaps but it always does and we don't yeah. know as humans yet because we don't we've only been in california has not been collecting data that was accurate on climate, for example, since about 1850. I mean, only since 1850. So we, yeah, really, sure. don't, the, we don't, in, really don't know. The Industrial long-term.
1: Revolution made that all possible, too, by the way. Yeah. The collecting well, of data. Well, I can
2: almost. tell you that in the 1970s, uh, maybe it was 73 or 74, our class had a little thing on the new polar ice age, the little polar ice age. And there was Newsweek. Everybody knows that cover. They showed a picture of the earth and then it was covered with ice. And I can remember in high school that you for about three years, we just didn't go to high school every morning because of a fog alert. It was so wet and so cold. And of all places, of San Joaquin Valley, you would get 100 nights a year. It seemed like all of November, December, January, February, where you would get foggy mornings. And then you got enormous. I can remember where my 10 miles of my house, the Kings River flooded and all of the Tulare Lake Basin filled up again. And everybody was saying this is I don't know. We're going to and all the fruit growers said, I don't know if we're going to st- be able to farm because uh, the. The blossoms are all getting blossom rot from these rains, you know, as early as late February. And then we get too high humidity. You're putting all the sulfur on the grapes or rotting. And now it's just the opposite. Oh, we were below average rainfall, da-da-da, we're, we're in a drop. The difference is then they didn't say, oh, the world's, we've got we've to get a bigger V8 so we can warm up the, <laughs> the 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 world, you know, we've got to leave our thermostats on so we can get some more heat because we're in the ice age. It's not what they said. Now we say that we've got to do the opposite, but they don't have enough exact knowledge. At least they don't have enough exact knowledge. Put it this way. I'm not a climate denialist. If you show me the data and I've looked at some of it, that incrementally in the last 30 or 40 years, the United States has got a little warmer but I don't know if we know exactly why that is, or at least why it is to the extent that you would wreck the economy. Mm. Because if you wreck the economy, you're going to destroy the lives of millions of people, just like the quarantine did. But they always go out this, you know, if you lock down and you flatten the curve, oh no, not flatten the curve for two weeks, for for a year, then the Oxford model will be avoided that says 3 million Americans are going to be killed or two million and then all of a sudden we think wow all these surges in prostate cancer breast cancer heart problem all of these people just stayed isolated in their homes terrified to go to a doctor for what 15 months and so they have to be a little humility involved and just say why don't they just go to this and say you know what there's kind of an irony here we all flew because we wanted the ease of modern life and we really appreciate it, but we're not sure whether our lifestyles, especially our lifestyles, the elite, that are here at Glasgow, contribute to an artificial climate that might, if it raises global temperatures a degree or two, it could really affect seaside communities, et cetera. Therefore, We want to give incentives for private enterprise to accelerate electric cars if they have a power generation source. And then we start getting into what? Just to finish, the paradox. You know why they don't say that? Because there's only really one power source that's clean burning, according to their definition, and doesn't Mm -hmm. release heat from the fuel.
1: Let me guess.
2: That's nuclear Nuclear and I and to a lesser extent, hydroelectric they hate both of them they think hydroelectric, they want to blow up dams they don't want to i'm um, serious they do they talk about it. Yeah. they don't want to build more dams, and more importantly, they do not want to build they're they're decommissioning nuclear plants, but that is the only way you're going to produce enough electricity to fuel these batteries that they're going to power us at night or electric cars, except And they don't even yeah. get near what are you going to do with these millions of new batteries and cars and appliances etc etc that are going to have to be discarded somewhere i don't know what you're going to do with them can they be recycled and the big elephants in the room are india and china the two biggest polluters now i think not just per capita but in the world yeah and so what are you going to do with them are you going to go tell communist china with 1.4 billion people that's about ready to invade taiwan hey I think you guys got, you're building way too much coal. Do not import coal from the United States or Australia. Just don't do it, President Xi. We're not going to allow you to do it. No, he's going to say, screw you. And then if you're India and you tell the Indians that, they're going to get even more clever. They're going to say, as Greta Thunberg said, well, you had the industrial revolution. We're having ours. So you had 150 years of coal. We're going to have another 150. You know, they don't quite say that, but that's yeah. the subtext. So if you're not going to address it, almost a third of the world that are the big polluters. The United States has reduced carbon emissions faster than any major industrial country in the world.
1: Yeah.
2: And yet we have to listen.
1: We're still flagellating ourselves.
2: Yeah, we are. We always do. And Donald Trump was right to get out. He basically said, I don't want to be in any group that impinges on U.S. sovereignty, A, gives a blank check to China to pollute, and see when we have already met their goals by converting from coal to natural gas, and we want to increase nuclear, that was the way to go. And everybody said that what? He was filling the blanks.
1: Yep. All right. With that, I would like to segue into the Iraqi prime minister, Al-Kahimi, who they tried, someone tried to assassinate with, and what I thought was interesting about the story is they attempted attack was by drone, and also that there's still this internecine strife in Iraq, where there is a pro-Iranian Shiite group that was out protesting outside of his government buildings, which I interestingly are still in the green zone that the United States has set up. And so all of those things together just seem to me very interesting about this Iraqi assassination attempt, not the least of which is that the prime minister himself was wounded by a knife so i don't know what these drones what these drones were carrying but the whole thing just sounded interesting to me but i'm not sure and just actually what are your thoughts we haven't heard much about iraq i mean they seem to have a prime minister they seem to be limping along in some sort of consensual government form
2: but what are your thoughts we'll start with iraq I wrote an article, I don't know, three or four years ago, and then I kind of wrote it again. And I said people had it wrong about the good war and the bad war. Remember that Obama institutionalized this idea that Iraq was this horrible place, and it was a horrible place, and the war was terrible. Maybe it was. But Afghanistan, Afghanistan was the only thing that Bush did right. And he actually surged troops. But if you look at the two By any measure, Iraq was always more important. It was right in the Middle East. It was converting its oil revenues to nefarious purposes. The UN had condemned it. The U.S. Congress had voted with overwhelmingly Democratic support to remove Saddam. And it wasn't just, as everybody said, weapons of mass destruction. That was the air of the Bush administration. And I had written that as well. Because all they did is say weapons of mass destruction. West, there were 23 reasons that the U.S. Congress said that Saddam is a danger to the United States and the Western world and the Middle East and the world at large. And they listed them. He violated the no-fly zones. He's giving $25,000 to every suicide murderer that goes into Israel and kills people. He's got every every terrorist in the world out Abu Nadal is there. He's got the architects of the first world trade bombing that tried to take down the twin. They're there. He has wiped out a lot of the Marsh Arabs. He's committed genocide against the Kurds. He's violated all of the 1991 so-called peace accords that we did after the first. I could go on. There's 23 of them. And so we had reason, a lot more reasons, just as many reasons to go take him out in theory than we did maybe the Taliban. Because once uh, bin Laden left and was up in the Hindu Kush war, way up in the Pakistan, the Taliban said he's gone. We have no problem with you. They're lying, of course. They were an enablers. But my point is we really overdid the good war, bad war. And then when you look at the mechanics of the war, Afghanistan was always the harder nut to crack. It had rough terrain. We had to have Pakistan, a nuclear Pakistan, right across the border, appeasing, feeding, winking and nodding at us, threatening us, cajoling us, begging us, blackmailing us, where they empowered the Taliban. There were no ports. You could not bring in supplies by ocean. It was surrounded by the Russians and the Iranians and the Pakistanis. And it was landlocked and mountainous, and it had no history of modern industrial life. And when you looked at Iraq, it had all this oil. It had a pretty clear terrain. I was embedded there twice, so when you go there, when you get up in a helicopter or a plane, you can see for miles. It was kind of tailor-made for a United States firepower if you had to use it, as we learned in the first Gulf War. And there were some key U.S. interests right next to it, i.e. Israel and, and the Gulf. Oil-producing states. So, that being said, and there were a there was a much greater tradition of what I would call people in Iraq that were educated, and some of them westernized. Not a lot of them, but what I'm getting at is that it doesn't surprise me that there was a president and a parliament, and more or less elections going on in Iraq in a way that had not been as true under us in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And that the opposition, while it was major, was not taking over half the country.
1: Yeah.
2: And when they did do it, Donald Trump said he was going to bomb the S out of ISIS. And he could do that because of the terrain. And a lot of people were against it. So it's a 65% Shia country. And they're Mm -hmm. angry because their various parties, Hezbollah-affiliated parties, are not running the country as Iran has told them to do. And the Iranians are telling them, look. You're part of a Shia crescent, and we're going to go from Tehran all the way down to the Mediterranean. And just as Assad has depended on us now in Syria, and just as we've taken over Lebanon, you were part of the deal. This is a final reckoning with the Arab world. The Shia and the Persians were always given second shtick, and Barack Obama wanted us to have parity. That was the whole keystone of his policy whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in Syria or whether it was in Iraq or whether it was in Lebanon or whether it was in Iran. So
1: are you trying you to say them? that that you're impressed that they're maintaining am, this consensual government given the fact that Whatever got it is, so I cannot much believe.
2: protest and I cannot believe that Shia Arabs have been participating against the wishes of Shia Iranians mm-hmm. and they seem to be as We were told there are more, and it reminds me of the 81, 82, 83, and on and on Iran-Iraq war, where Saddam Hussein found that 65% of his country fought for this crooked, murderous, autocrat, Sunni dictator, Saddam Hussein, against Iranian Shia Persians, because they were Arabs, and they felt they were more Iraqi. And so... That was just contrary to the whole establishment in Washington. Oh, you know, Joe Biden, we have to have a Kurd state. We have to divide it into three parts. He was really big on that. Biden wrote a bunch of op-eds on that lunatic idea. But here we've got a president, and he's been able to hold hold the country together, and they had recent elections. And most of the Shia Iraqis, who are the overwhelming two-thirds of the population, they rejected the hardcore Iranian yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's- surrogate. Surrogate. So then they tried to take out the president and cause chaos again. And I don't know. We don't know much about the drones. I don't It sounds like they were suicide drones where they just mm. came in a general vicinity and then blew up and sent out, I don't know, particles, knives, explosive ball. I don't know what they were, yeah, but they were very maybe. powerful, but just hope to pray pray God that these sophisticated drones were not reverse engineered or in part exported out of Afghanistan to Iran and to yeah. its, its, its surrogates in Iraq, because it sounds like they achieved a level of sophistication. Maybe it gone even 10 or 15 miles. They can, you know, these small little drones, they sound like they have a, a level of sophistication that we're not really associated with militias in Iraq or even Iran. I mean, I'm afraid that we're going to see a lot of this stuff if Afghanistan is exporting this technology or selling it off on a world yeah. terrorist arms market.
1: All right. Well, Victor, let's we have a word from our sponsors and then we'll um, talk to you a little bit about your current trip or flight to uh, Wisconsin area this afternoon. But first, let's have a word from the sponsor. <laughs>
0: time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash Victor 50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R and use the code Victor50. That's code Victor50 at factormeals.com/slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
1: All right, Welcome back. And Victor, tell us about your flight and and you know, what would you do if you had control of the airline industry?
2: Well, first thing I wouldn't do, I wouldn't be like the CEOs of Delta and American when people are waiting six hours on their helpline or their planes are going in the wrong direction, sniffing out fuel anywhere they can find it, except the destination. Then I wouldn't start virtue signaling that you're mad about voter ID laws in Georgia and Texas. And that's what they're doing. But I counted, I think it was 16 trips and Twelve to thirteen of them. There was a delay or cancellation, or redirect. I just had to go speak to a group down in the desert, and I went to Palm Springs. I met them. I got back. Flight was delayed out of Palm Springs. Got to San Francisco. Missed the connection. They said plane was sitting out. I ran to the door. They said the door is closed. You can't go out. I went and said go over to help to get redirected. There's a later flight. Ran across to another terminal. It was 35 people and one person at the counter at night, ran back, the plane's still there right outside the window. I asked the person, can I please board now? They said, no, it's against FAA rules. You cannot, we close the door. We're not going to open it. I said, well, why is it still here? Almost an hour. Later. Oh, they, we only had one baggage carrier. They put the bags in wrong. It does not balance. We're taking them out and redoing it. And then, well, you still have 11. there that was canceled. And so, That's pretty much, you know, go to Chicago, 11 hours delay. Oh, by the way, we're on our way home and we're going to stop in Denver to top off the tanks because there's no fuel in Fresno. Okay. (laughs) Wait a second.
1: Can can I ask you something that sounds really scary to me? So they have just random people loading bags. But. They need to Not have random. a precious, but they need to have a precious balance. And, you know, what if one of these planes take off unbalanced? Because well, I mean, I wrote that. There.
2: I didn't want to be morbid. I said there's going to be a, a wreck. You go to LAX and there's so many planes and there's so little margin of error when they park and taxi. And you look at the people out there with the batons and the baggage handlers and the supply. They're, they're short people. Because people, you know, during the slowdown quit or they Mm -hmm. were laid off and they haven't all come to back because Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden are giving them a lot of money to stay home. So they're hiring anybody. Mm -hmm. And some of them are very good workers and some aren't. And so if I could just list in the last three months why I have been delayed, it is, oh, flight attendant didn't get up this morning or she didn't show up. There's no other flight attendants we get. Very sorry. Oh, there's no fuel. There is fuel, but we have to go in the wrong direction to go get it, 200 miles away. Oh, we're circling, circling, circling because the line is crowded, so we're going to have to divert to Grand Rapids. But don't worry, there's a lot of fuel and there's very few planes. You land, there's very little fuel and there's a lot of planes. Or, oh, we just decided to cancel that flight. Could I book tomorrow? No, we canceled the whole flight forever it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, okay. Oh, by the way, we have to change the size of the plane. And so 20 of you are going to have to get off because we have to use a smaller plane. We didn't really know that. We're sorry. Can we get 20 people? And if not, we're going to have to just choose the people who have less miles. And that was interesting to watch that near Riot. And that's how it goes (laughs) every day. So... Today, I thought I looked at the record of the flight that I took to get to Denver, and it was very checkered. And then everything went pretty well. So I thought to myself, since I wasn't worrying about that flight, and I'm not going to fly for six months, I said, I can't do it anymore. No more. No more. Okay. But still, what what would you do do if you had to control it? I'm very keen, Sammy. I'm a very keen observer of this. (laughs) Farmer from Selma, Hicksville. I know you bringing, are. I'm bringing my raisin expertise <laughs> to the sophisticated field of avionics and airline transportation.
1: I think First you're even you scaring do, the airlines with your keenness.
2: I know. <laughs> that, I, that One guy wrote me a note about two years ago when I started going on a hurricane. Everybody's sick of them, though.
1: Anyway, First of go all, ahead.
2: What they did was they started charging to check-in baggage. So people got bigger and bigger bags, and the carry-on size went from you know, a little compact the size of your forearm to some monstrous thing they call carry-on. At the same time, they cram more people into the plane. They narrow the leg room. And then these. Oh, there's a few new planes that have really nice overhead compartments, that, and it solves some of the problems. I mean, they're very generous. I don't know. I think there's stretch 737s. I was in one. I couldn't believe it. it you could crawl up there and slept in them. But... They were like international, but most of them aren't. The one I was on today. So what happens is nobody wants to pay money to check in their bags. And they all bring in these things in. And then they say, oh, my God, I didn't know that this thing is three times as big. And they try to hammer it in. Then they have to go all the way back. So boarding used to be 10 minutes. It's 30 minutes. And they should do the opposite. They should just tell everybody. If you check your bag in, you get free. If you take a carry-on, you're going to have to pay $5 per (laughs) carry-on, and that would give a different incentive. Number two, they always tell you you cannot get on the phone. Only get on the phone, text, or call people once you're in the plane, and you can keep doing it, and then when the plane's ready to take off, no. Okay, why don't they just say this? When you step foot on the ramp as you give your ticket, you got to shut off your phone. Because I've watched stuff the last three months. I cannot believe it's the typical person is some overburdened woman or man. And they come in and they've got a thing slung over their shoulder and they're eating and they've got a carry on. And they're on the phone with one hand and they stop and they try to do this and this and they hold up everybody. Why don't they just say, shut the phone off? That's an FAA regulation the moment you get on that plane until you take off but they don't do it. So everybody's talking and I have a computer that just, I mean, a person dropped their whole suitcase on it. It was a Mac. It was a wonderful computer and it got a big dent in it and it kept working. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff you can be injured. So they have to do that. And then I have another crueler pet peeve, I think. And that is I've noticed something when they say, you know, you're eligible for a wheelchair. And I, I've had a lot of Uh, infirmities in my life. And I had a ruptured appendix once in Libya and I had to come home in a wheelchair. So I'm not criticizing people who are disabled. I've had disabled people in my life, but this is what I think they're going to have to do because I was on a flight out of Fresno and there were nine, nine wheelchairs. And there were two poor young women that were trying to handle the whole thing and they were not big and the people in the chairs were enormous. And so what I'm getting at is If you are in a wheelchair, then you must stay in the plane and you must disembark on a wheelchair. That's just a gift. You should not be able to say, I want to be the first person in on the plane in a wheelchair so I have room for my huge overhead and I may or may not have an infirmity that would have prevented me. If it did, I have no problem. But when you land and you got to get a connection, suddenly... It's like the air was some type of miracle healing power because people I see come in and they're wheeled all the way into a seat. And then the the first person's on the plane, their luggage. And then the next thing, you know, you land in Phoenix or Salt Lake and wham, they're like Jesse Owens going out the door. (laughs) And so it doesn't make any sense. So just be consistent one way or another. And I think that would make boarding a, a lot easier. And finally, and fourth in this too long rant, but I think it's important because we all fly and it's an industry that the United States used to be preeminent in, and I'm terribly afraid it's dangerous. And it, it's really sad to see the erosion in air travel, even though we're traveling more people, we're sending more people across the country safer statistically at a cheaper price than we ever have before but the level of satisfaction the comfort and the margin of really of air is down to be infinitesimal i mean there's not much margin of error left but fourth is that i understand the pilots have problems but when you have all of these glitches and they tell you as they uh, i was just on a plane where they said we'll be we're sorry about the delay we're now going to leave in five minutes and then 10, 15, and then you look out the window and they're still loading the bags. For some reason, there's only one bag carrier out there, but we'll be out in three minutes and then 20 minutes more. We've got the bags on. That's the good news. The bad news is that we don't have our baton person here to guide us out, but there's, he's right over there. He'll be here shortly. I, it will not be more than two or three minutes, three or two or three minutes. And this goes on and on and on and it's 45 minutes and then you look at the faces of these poor people and you can read i just missed my connection i'm 80 years old how am i going to sprint with a four minute margin there so their lives are ruined and it's all predicated on having one person short one too few people and then 140 people are just devastated and it doesn't make any sense and the and the pilot cannot be candid So that creates cynicism. So everybody looks at each other, he's lying. Or the the woman next to me said, when they say five minutes, remember it means 15. When they say 15, it means an hour. And we left 55 minutes on the tarmac, each time in segmented warnings that we will be underway within three or four minutes. So it's sort of like Baghdad Bob is running the airline.
1: Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but that just sounds like a CEO problem. I mean, these CEOs should be on the, somebody should be putting The fire under
2: him. Uh, Well, as I said earlier, in my earlier rant, if you're diverting your attention, your labor and time and capital to the commissariat, and you've got commissars everywhere, and you yourself are performance virtue signaling, then you're not having your eye on the ball, just like General Milley didn't or... James Comey didn't, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, so, but this is this is not just an academic exercise. These are people's lives. And I'll give you one last example, and I promise to stop. And that was I was in a, an airline. I won't mention the name because I don't want to denigrate some of the airlines, but some are worse than the others. And I fly a lot, unfortunately. And I'm going to stop as of this week for six months. But my point is I saw a whole group of young girls, about 15, that and their parents that were going on a cruise up to Seattle and they'd never been on a cruise. I was talking to them and we had a seven o'clock flight to Seattle on a nice Sunday morning. It should have been like clockwork and they were there and they had to get onto the cruise boat that was leaving and they had about a two hour and the airline announced that they were short one flight attendant, i.e. Saturday night, People like to party. Somebody was hungover. She came about an hour late. They did a very quick private exam. And they, when she walked in, everybody sighed because they knew that she was in no condition to get on the plane. Okay, well, they usually have a person or two in every city that are kind of like firewomen or firemen. You call them for any airline and they'll jump up even on their day off to make sure that doesn't, end this labor short, they couldn't find anybody. And so the result was all these people They missed their flight. It wasn't just they canceled the flight. And then you unleash all these people in a small regional airport like Fresno, and they're trying to find ways. It's very sad. I guess what I'm trying to say to finish, they have to have a systems backup. They have to be built in the system that they anticipate fuel shortages, labor shortages, the known unknowns, and then they have to have that margin and error so that that doesn't become typical or chronic or characteristic of them. But when they came out of the COVID, they had a bad situation going in and they made it much worse because they wanted to make revenues up after losing their shirts when nobody flew during COVID, they laid off experienced crews and pilots. They came back. A lot of their workforce retired. A lot of them won't work given the incentives to stay home. They're hiring people that are not up to the same standards they had, but they have twice the patronage. And the result is there's no margin of error. And then you add the CEOs who are so scared of losing their job if they're not woke. And it's tragic. Yeah. The United States created air passenger travel. We created it, and we were—we had the best planes, the best airports. And now you look at these airports, and you look at—it's just chaos. And people are—you look at their faces when they go into the airport, and you look at the way that TSA treats them. You go—it's just sad.
1: Yeah. And anyway, eventually it'll be a disaster. But
2: if somebody's thank gonna you. die. I'm afraid somebody's gonna die. That's why I took precious time. And I know that our listeners don't want to hear about people who fly because a lot of them don't fly and they don't want to fly. Rightly so. But I think as Americans, they should be very worried about this industry because it's going to get someone they know and love injured or hurt if they don't very quickly, abruptly, radically shake up the airline's the airport authorities, the federal government's TSA, and they better do it very quickly.
1: Yeah. All right, Victor Davis Hanson, thank you very much. This has been a great morning afternoon maybe evening for some of our listeners and we look forward to our next show so i want to thank you and the listeners
2: thank you for having me sammy
1: all right and
2: we'll talk to everybody very soon with sammy and jack
1: all right this is sammy wink and victor davis hansen and we're signing off